I'm a rancher. I have to be environmentally conscious every day. But the people that really want to hammer on grass finished being better for the environment, you have a 67% lower carbon footprint eating grain finished beef than you do eating grass because the cattle are alive shorter, a shorter amount of time. And the amount of methane that cattle emit is highest when they're on a roughage diet. When they're on a concentrate diet, they are not burping as much. They're not generating the methane that comes from breaking down grass. Dude, thanks for coming up. Uh, where in Colorado are you out of? So we are northeast of Denver, about 90 miles. So a little town called Sterling is okay. kind of the biggest one near us. Uh, we claim Akron as our home base because that's typically our, our technically the mailing address. Yeah. But northeast corner. Okay. So it looks a lot like Nebraska where I live. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because my uh, – so your last name Smith, right? It is. Jeff Smith. Yeah. No uh, relation, right? Not that we know Well, of. it's funny because my uh, – uh, my uncle, his name is Jeff Smith, and he's the rancher in southeast Colorado. He sounds like a pretty smart guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he's about as ugly as you are. It happens. <laughs> There's only so much you can do. <laughs> yeah. No, he, uh, my dad grew up in Los Animas, Colorado. Okay. Um, and my uncle still runs a ranch down there. So it's, it's crazy. My dad had 15 uh, brothers and sisters. Wow. So 16 of them, they grew up on the ranch down there, and then all of the siblings signed over the ranch to the one brother just mm-hmm. for him to run. So, um, but man, that's tough country down there in Southeast Colorado. I mean, it's like, it's like ranch dry, dry, dusty. It's either dry and hot and dry and grasshoppers or cold as hell and wind and snow blowing sideways. It seems yeah. like it's one or the other, but it's not, not an easy place to ranch. Well, and the rain events you get are three inches or nothing. Right. It yeah. comes in, in gully washers and you don't get to retain a lot of the moisture in the ground. And Yeah. And then it's nothing for, you know, nine months mm-hmm. down there. It's just so dry. Yeah. It's funny. My dad said, you know, if, if I think it was my great, great grandfather that homesteaded all that, <clears throat> if only he would have just rode his horse one more day. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's like, you, you know, it must've just been a, a certain point where they were just like his wife or somebody back then was just like, I refuse to go any further. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, no, let's just go one more day. Nope, this is where we're at. And well, if they'd have just gone one more day, because, like, you go another day, you go just a little further west. The soil becomes so much more fertile, and there's rivers, and you start getting into some trees. And mm-hmm. it's just so much different from southeast Colorado to just an hour drive, two hour drive, two hours drive west. Yeah, and I've made the same joke to Kara's family. So my wife, Kara, is actually the fifth-generation rancher. Okay. Uh, I just married in because if you're going to marry, you know, marry up and be the ugly one, I took care of that. Yeah. I, I tell my kids, uh, and this is the best life advice I think I've, I've ever given and I can give them, which is marry for land or money. You can learn to love. <laughs> I haven't used that one, but I might need to make that t-shirt. We'll do a co-branded t-shirt collab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, you grew up in Oregon. What did, what did your folks do there then? Uh, my dad was Department of Defense SWAT. So he was on an SRT team at a chemical weapons facility about 30 miles west of Pendleton. Okay. Uh, they decommissioned that facility in 2012. Uh, but for as long as I could remember, I mean, kinder, kindergarten forward, uh, he wore BDUs to work, carried a gun at work, um, worked on a secure facility, and maybe once a year, once every couple of years, we got to go play with the tank simulators when the National Guard brought them in. Yeah. That was a pretty good time. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then mom owned a small real estate company. Okay. So, you know, just local local folks doing local stuff. 
Uh, dad was a Vietnam vet. He was actually, he was on a LSD like 12 miles south of Saigon on a boat when uh, Saigon fell. Oh, wow. So he, actually when I went on Andy's podcast, I called dad. I was like, you know, we've never talked about this. And he told me some of the stories of that day. I was like, oh, man. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, luckily he wasn't in the middle of it, um, but he said they had the entire fire suppression system active, just hosing helicopters so they wouldn't land on deck, um, just trying to keep them away. Uh, really? The funniest part about that whole deal is my uncle, who is a retired Marine Corps, was uh, Recon 1 on Okinawa that got activated when Saigon fell. And since mm. dad was in the area of operations, they made him stay home. Oh, really? There's still some animosity about that. I love to, you know, rile that up in a text message every now and then yeah. to my dad and my uncle. Yeah, no shit. Jeez, that's amazing. Yeah, those guys are, those were, those were real hard-ass men back then. I can't, yeah. can't even imagine. Well, and, and dad grew up in Wyoming. He grew up ranching and farming and quit high school early to go join the Navy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's a toughness about that that I don't think exists in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So. so the ranching kind of skipped again generation with you, um, your uh, or with your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like he grew up doing that, and then and then did did what he did. Now now you're back to doing it. Yeah. So my grandpa on my dad's side was a farrier in the army. He was a horseshoer oh, in the army. So was my my grandpa. There you go. So I think he was in from like 32 to 39 or. Something like that. I'd have to look at a picture of his tombstone I have because he has the cavalry logo on his tombstone. Um, and then he basically, like, he helped build the missile silos in so was, was he 10th Mountain Division? I don't know. Because um, my grandfather was 10th Mountain Division. He was in World War II as a farrier. Okay. And I, I have his anvil. Oh. Um, that's what I've made all my knives on is his my grandpa's anvil. That's sweet. Um, I'll have to ask Dad. I don't know what, what unit Grandpa was in. Interesting. Um. So grandpa was always involved in that. And then he worked for farms and they moved around a lot when they were young. Um, so we were always, I, I kind of had the same upbringing as my dad. I was always involved in agriculture. Mm-hmm. You know, I was running wheat harvest crews or bucking hay or moving cows or, you know, mm-hmm. doing whatever. Most of the time in an effort to get better hunting ground where yeah. we grew up, like, oh, you need help moving cows. That's great. Can I hunt your river ground for ducks? Right. And it worked out pretty good. And then I moved to Colorado to go to school and lost all of that privilege. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how'd you meet your wife? Uh, well, so I went to school at CSU, Colorado mm-hmm. State, and then I worked for Cargill um, in corporate America for a while. Doing I thought Deion Sanders built that school. Or no, Colorado State. I'm thinking yeah. Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> all these Colorado fans come lately that, you know, Colorado is such a big deal now that Deion Sanders is there. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, geez, they act like. Dion just built the school. Yeah. You know, like it never existed until he came along. But yeah, you're uh, Colorado State. Yeah, CSU. And then uh, I went to work for Cargill running like big grain elevators, doing capital projects okay. and stuff like that, doing shipping grain, a lot of shipping to the terminals on the on the ocean. Uh, then went back to Oregon, uh, did a bunch of projects for some people, and then actually ran an earthwork company for mm-hmm. about six years. And uh, we did a lot of underground, a lot of subdivision development, um, similar to, I think, your background, a yep. lot of, like, light commercial, um, some big residential stuff, but nothing crazy. A mm-hmm. uh, lot of demo. Demo was always my favorite because you could do the math and you didn't have to go quite so slow. Yeah. Uh, and then I was living in Oregon, and my wife graduated from West Texas A&M with her master's degree in cow nutrition and took a job at the University of Idaho in the Treasure Valley in Idaho uh, down by Boise. As okay. the beef quality assurance coordinator for Idaho. Yeah. 
and we had some mutual friends and we all went to a big concert in Boise one night and she was part of the group and she had came in boots and starch jeans on. And I said, who is that? I need to know who she is. And yeah. like three months later, she went on a date with me. Yeah. Um, I was in corporate sales for a while, so it took a little bit of uh, wearing her down, but mm-hmm. that was like 10 years ago. So really, yeah, that's cool. So, so she, she grew up on the ranch that you guys are on right now. Yeah. She grew up about a mile from where we live right now, uh, in the original homestead for the family, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, original homestead for the family is about a quarter mile from our house, uh, and it was founded in 1913. Is when they originally settled. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah. Is it? Uh, did they? When they settled that area, um, did they have like a dugout house, or did they build like a kind of a typical style farmhouse? Or so interestingly enough, they built the typical style farmhouse. And in the 50s, they moved it into town, and it still stands today. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, my father-in-law drove me by there just a couple of years ago. He's like, yeah, this this is the house. See the addition? I was like, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but the trees where the original farmstead was uh, still stand. That's cool. So if you look on our website and you see pictures of us in trees, that's mm-hmm. in the original homestead, in the old trees. Yeah. So. How, how, uh, so how, how did that transition happen that you guys you know ended up back down on the ranch then? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got married in 2014. Mm-hmm. I had to think about that. I didn't want to misspeak. I might catch some heat for that. <laughs> That's all right. I don't remember what year I got married. Yeah. My, well, my wife did me a solid. Our anniversary is 12, 13, 14. So hopefully I don't that. That is that. actually, that's pretty damn easy. Yeah. She, she, she helped me out on that one. I, you know, get head hit or get hit in the head every now and then and get yeah. some stuff. Um, we were both in corporate America. So she was in pharmaceuticals on the cattle side. Uh, when I moved to Idaho, when we decided we were going to get married, I went to work for a company out of Iowa, actually named the Bratney Company. Mm-hmm. So they build seed cleaning plants, and we work with a lot of like food. They worked, with, excuse me, they work with a lot of food processors. Uh, so when I was covering that territory, I built like Land O'Lakes alfalfa seed plant. Uh, did a lot of work with Coors, all their grain handling at the at the uh, barley facilities in Montana and Idaho. Okay, but also at the brewery in Golden. Yeah. Uh, and I did that for about six years. Uh, so started that in 2013, but about mid 2015, the company care was working for us said, Hey, we want you to move closer to the feeding cattle triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, which for those of you that don't know, the feeding cattle triangle is Omaha, Denver, Amarillo. Okay. That's like 90% of the fed beef in the U S comes out of that region. Okay. And, and you're talking fe- the biggest feed lots. Uh, or- so fed beef. Uh, so to be USDA graded beef, you have to be fed, which is cattle under 30 months of age, all those different things. So like a lot of the cow-calf guys in Montana, their cattle move south. Yep. Uh, as opposed to like Putnam. You know, Putnam and I talk three or four times a year. I really like Greg. He's a good mm-hmm. dude. Um, good episode, by the way. I really enjoyed what you guys yeah, talked thanks. about. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically in the Montana space, People in our region want good northern cattle. We want cattle out of North Dakota. We want cattle out of Montana. Uh, with Colorado Craft Beef, we don't do quite that model. But in the commercial space, everything kind of aggregates towards the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the exception being like the agri-beef model that's Boise, Utah. Those guys are kind of the outlier. That's, you know, Snake River Farms. That's all under agri-beef. Uh, okay. Privately held company, family owned, very good operation. They do some good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that typical model, cattle move towards the middle. That's why a lot of the big processors are there. Mm-hmm. It's easier to get corn because it's easier to freight corn than fat cattle to a harvest facility, right? Right. Um, 
so that's an interesting kind of look at how the industry runs. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife got the opportunity to move back. They asked us to move to Amarillo. <laughs> As a graduate of Texas Tech, she politely declined because she didn't like the wind that much. Yeah. Uh, and she said, well, what if we move back to the ranch? And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. So for the first year, we moved back to the ranch. We rented one of the neighbor facilities. One of the neighbor ranches had an extra house, rented that for a year, and then we bought the place we're in. Uh, which actually bordered the ranch on the east side. Okay. Um, so we bought our own place. Uh, since then, we've done a ton of work, added buildings, uh, probably not dissimilar to what you guys are doing. We have a fulfillment center, all of our offices, everything else for the beef company there. Yeah. Um, but that was, uh, we bought that place in 2016. And then early 2017, the idea for the beef company kind of started to circulate. Uh, we pulled the trigger on it. And in 2018, we started shipping beef direct to consumer. So what was the status? What what was going on with the ranch? Like about the time that you moved down there, was her dad running it, her, mm-hmm. her parents? What what was what was that? What did that operation look like then? Same way it looks now. So what we did. But they weren't shipping beef, right? No. They weren't cutting beef and shipping it. So were they just uh, kind of the typical ranch raising, raising cattle, mm-hmm. breeding cattle? So her, her dad's what you call a stalker operator. Mm-hmm. So he buys calves and he has a ton of grass and we just turn cattle out on grass in the summer. Okay. And in the fall they get sold. Maybe you retain some and feed them depending on the market, et cetera. But yep. very commercial. Okay. And nothing wrong with that. That's how you got to feed people. Right. Yeah. No, there's a lot of people that don't, um, you know, own cows and actually breed, you know, in the bulls or the AI and, and do the actual mm-hmm. whole thing. And in fact, the the place that we hunt on down in New Mexico She's got her own cows. I, I, you know, she's got it's kind of an unreal amount of work, but uh, she's got her own cows. But then they run a, you know, a, she buys a, you know, ton of steers in the spring and mm-hmm. runs yearlings. Yeah, yeah, feeds and, them, feeds them out. And, yeah, and that's and that's basically the model that the ranch. Well, she doesn't feed them out. She she grazes them for through the summer, like you say, and then they go to a feedlot. But. Sure. So the ranch actually still runs the way it has. So Colorado Craft Beef and what we've put together is independent of the family ranch. Uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting because we get a lot of people that are like, well, if we were given whatever we could do, whatever you guys are doing, I'm right. Like, yeah. Man, we weren't must given be anything. Nice. Yeah. The yeah. must be nice crowd. Andy Frizzella talks about them a lot, Yeah, but it's like, man, we, we bootstrapped this thing because Kara and I were fortunate that we both had really good corporate jobs and yeah. we were able to cash flow it together, put it together and start building. So what was that conversation like? Like how, how did this idea come about? So the original catalyst, Karen and I had been talking about it kind of briefly because we both came from sales. It's like, um, it was 2015, right before we moved back. Uh, and we were standing with my father-in-law, Dave, in the barn at his place. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about secession planning at the ranch. And I'm a business dork. Um, I, I have some time in private equity. I, I like numbers. I like to work, but numbers seem to pay better. Yeah. And... We were talking to him, talking about secession planning, and we said, well, I asked Dave, I said, man, I, I know enough about your business model to be dangerous. Can we repeat that? And he said, no. He said, you got to find a better way. Mm-hmm. Well, over, you know, 18 to 24 months, we kind of ruminated on that. And, and then I started running numbers on return on capital investment and all the other stuff that you have to do to just run commercial cattle. Yeah. Those numbers are not good. You know, it's my father-in-law will tell you that the profitability per head is the same now as it was 40 years ago. But 40 years ago, 
fifty or seventy thousand dollars bought you a truckload of cattle, and today it's one hundred and thirty. Right. So your return on capital is now half. Right. Um. So I, we started crunching numbers, and I'm like, man, why? So basically, every year you've got everything put up against your cattle. Yeah. You could go bankrupt at any point. Yep. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. That doesn't. Yep. That sounds like your cows own you, right? That old dairy adage: you don't own dairy cows, dairy cows own you. And we started looking at where we could provide value. And really, conversations like this is what we had in mind. Mm-hmm. Talking to people about ag. Like, I, I proclaim myself a ag industry, you know, I wouldn't say expert, but I'm a little more knowledgeable about the national ag supply chain than most. Right. Just based on what I had to do in my career. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we can sell beef that will help us build a platform to go talk to people and let them understand how all this stuff has to work. Right. Um, like we were, me and your producer were talking about, you know, the differences of, you know, you doing custom knives, right? Mm-hmm. How many custom knives can you build a year? How many people can you employ if you're building custom knives, right? right. It's, a, it's a different model. Right. And we started looking at that and we said, you know, and this was with the really, the first business conversation we had with the beef company was, oh, there's 20, 30, 40, families around us to do kind of the same thing, but it's open heifers or what they have left over that they put into a different market and they feed that. Right. Nothing wrong with it. The beef's fine, but we didn't want to compete with them. Mm -hmm. So we, we put the money on the line and built a website and operationalized everything. And the day we went live, we started shipping nationally. Yeah. We were able to do that. Now, yeah, the national orders took a little while to get rolling, of course. Right. But, as we started building that up, it's like we wanted to leap ahead of most of the local competitors because we didn't need another local competitor. Right. And as we started operationalizing that, uh, we started growing. We started getting this and that and, you know, going on different podcasts and starting to build a following. So how did you, um, you know, you say you you built a website and went live and started shipping beef. Um were you guys bringing the cattle in and, and killing them and butchering them yourself? Were you, were you, uh, you know, using local butcher shops just to supply you with buying the meat from them and then just, and then distributing it out? How, how did that, how does that look? So we were feeding cattle. So mm-hmm. we were bringing cattle in, putting them on grass okay. uh, at our place. Yep. Um, taking them to a partner feed yard that we had, finishing them and then starting them through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but the USDA facility that we utilized for butchering um, was actually owned by a classmate of mine from Colorado state. Okay. So it would have been December of 17. So before we even had cattle ready, uh, he was at a booth in Las Vegas during the NFR. Yeah. And I, Hey man, can I go buy you a beer? And he's like, you got like eight minutes, dude. If I leave the booth, my mom's going to kill me. Yeah. And I took him out and I said, this is what we're doing. And he said, look, man, if it's not retail quality beef, I don't want to do it. Yeah. I said, perfect. Because that's what we're after. We're after high end, high quality, you know, you open the box and you go, wow. Right. And he's like, cool, let's talk. So that was 2017. And he was, uh, as you can understand, a little apprehensive, like, man, whatever, here's another, here's people. Luckily he knew me from school, but it was still, you know, 20 or 30 people a year call him asking the same question. Yeah. Uh, And that's how it ran basically until October of last year. Uh, In October of 22, we took down our own feed yard. So we operationalize that next piece in the chain, and it's now under our control. Okay. Uh, and then just this summer, uh, we completed a partnership deal 
with a bunch of individuals, uh, Jocko, the founders of Jocko Fuel, you know, Jocko, Brian, and Pete. Mm-hmm. Uh, we brought in some other people, uh, Dr. Sean Baker, the carnivore doctor. Uh, we brought in Travis Mills, Dave Burke, Chris Catalini, and we did a fundraise, and we purchased the harvest facility in August. Oh, really? We own the whole chain. So the beef that you got from us, I can tell you exactly where it came from. Yeah. And and exactly who touched it and where it went. And now we're starting to operationalize digital inventory and all the other stuff. That so you, you guys, guys are cutting it up yourselves then? Yeah. We now own the facility. Yeah. Um, so we were actually just talking before we started. And so if you take Putnam's model. Yep. He has cow-calf. L- little Belt Cattle Company for people that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> just call him Putnam, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, little Belt Cattle Company. They have their own cows. They birth the calves, they raise them, then they take them to butcher, and then they ship them. Right. So they don't own the harvest piece. Mm-hmm. No judgment there. They just don't. And I think Greg even said he doesn't want to, which is reasonable because it's not a super fun part of the business. And yeah. it's also a regulatory nightmare. Um, we, on the other hand, don't have our own cow herd. Mm-hmm. So we source calves from local ranches that we dictate health protocols to, and then we take them from there all the way through the box. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's something I've said for a while that uh, you know our, supp- our 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 food supply for our country is so controlled by just a few major major players. You know, the like the beef game, right? And and you mm-hmm. see the price of steaks at at Costco or wherever you buy your meat, and and it's it's insane the amount of the the price per pound that that meat has gone up in the stores, mm-hmm. but what what it does not translate to the rancher, you know the the little belt cattle company or equivalent, my you know my uncle, it, you know it does not equi- equate to them getting a, a ton more money. The the money is being soaked up somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. and and then the 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 consumer that's buying from Costco or wherever has zero connection or idea what state that meat came from, where it came from, who, how it was handled, how, you know, the, the whole entire process. Mm-hmm. And, and I've wondered for a while why, you know, a ton of these ranches, because there's some huge ranches with people that are doing really well, why more of these ranches didn't get together and try to break some of the, the meat packing industry and, and like co-op or whatever. And, and, and I did learn a, a, a good friend of mine, actually he's going to be coming to work for us a certain January 1st, his son is uh, works for the. I don't. I, I guess it would be the FDA. He he's the he's the meat inspector here that has to go to the butcher shop and witness the whole the whole process. Uh, USDA. The USDA. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, his son he, he raised his kids doing 4-H and all that stuff. He went to school, got his degree and whatnot. Um, animal, something or other science. I I'm, I can't. I don't know, but. Uh, what I didn't realize is how tight the controls are by the USDA on, you know, he has to witness every single, uh, you know, cow being plugged in the head yep, um, or steer or whatever. And he has to uh, inspect the meat on every, every single carcass has to inspect the meat and ensure that um, there isn't something, you know, unsafe for the consumer, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely something that needs to happen because without oversight, obviously, things to get out of control a little bit. And I, and I learned a lot more from this through the bearded butchers that I took, uh, sure. that we just took hunting. That was fun watching. I really enjoyed watching your guys' Instagram story. <laughs> yeah. Those guys are awesome. Um, 
and they live just strictly in you know the butchering side of that of mm-hmm. that world you know and it's interesting and it's it's quite the process that a really qualified butcher shop has to go through um and you know they they said this and i'm sure you experienced this with your butcher shop it's really the only business that i know of that you essentially uh you you invite the police in to police you every single day and at any time you have one employee that does something wrong or you you know something goes wrong uh you know you it could cost you your business mm-hmm. um you know it, he said it's interesting and you know and you do get different inspectors in you know some people are uh, a little more trusting like you build a rapport with them and they trust your process and they start to understand that like oh these guys are super professional mm-hmm. and it's more of a relaxed you know working with them atmosphere mm-hmm. and he's like then sometimes you get inspectors then that are they're they're that guy wanting to try to prove something trying to find something advance their career or whatever and it's more of an adversarial well you came from the construction the industry right mm-hmm. like sometimes you got inspectors that want you to be successful they're there to help the project go well right and sometimes you had inspectors that could not leave until they fixed something yeah until they hammered you for something it's like they say with osha right with if osha comes to visit uh they are required by their rules to fine you for something Mm -hmm. you know instead of saying like god you're running a great operation you should tighten this up over here but good job yeah you know and that's so the the regulatory side and this is my hoodie off sure Go ahead. So the regulatory side of the USDA marker, if you will, is we have to, you have a HACCP plan. H-A-A-C-P is the, yeah. and it's basically your food safety plan for the facility. This facility will operate like this. These are the controls we use. These are the, they call them interventions, but it's like, you know, in a big harvest facility, an intervention is a, oh, a, a, steamer or a washdown or something yeah. so the chemical intervention we use is lactic acid which mm-hmm. is organic and it's certified and we have a protocol we have to mix it by and how you apply it and everything is detailed so the interesting thing about the usda inspection and i'm gonna not go too far into detail or my business partner that runs the harvest facilities can call me and be like dude yeah <laughs> don't talk about what you don't know <laughs> yeah um but it's it's very in, or very site specific. Mm-hmm. So it's not this is the plan. It's no this facility is built this way, and to do it correctly in this plant based on these construction or mm-hmm. this construction, you must do it like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting because you know if you look at our our facility, you know we're going to do a thousand or two thousand a year. You look at one of those big facilities like right. Cargill or like Cargill an hour from us, they do six thousand a day. Yeah. Six days a week. Right. And I did the math on that one day as the math nerd. And, man, that's unloading a semi-load of fat cattle every three minutes all day long. That is bonkers. Yeah. That's a, that's a, lot, of, that's a lot of gut pile you got to deal with. Uh, it's, called the, <laughs> it's called the blood pit. It's yeah. underneath the plant. Everything flows downhill. God, it's amazing. Um, and, it's, and it's unsavory. Like most people, myself included, would be like, ugh, who wants to be in here? Right. But man, without people that want to be in there, what are we going to do? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, my point with all those regulations and stuff is it, it shows you that it's not so easy as just like, you know, say my uncle in Colorado, like, why don't you just cut meat up and sell it? Like Mm -hmm. screw the plants, right? Like don't, don't sell your beef, just, just cut it up and sell it. And it's like, well, that that's not legal. Like you it has to be done in a certain way. 
you know, he could cut up a beef and give it away to a few friends. Mm -hmm. Um, but to, to cut it up and freeze it and ship it across state lines, state lines is the trick. That's a whole nother ball of wax. Right. And, 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 you know, so there's some serious barriers there for someone to get into this. So like, I can't imagine the amount of hoops and, and amount of thinking and planning you had to jump through before you ever actually shipped your first box of meat across state lines. It actually wasn't too bad. Really? Because once it comes out of a USDA facility, as a USDA bug on it is what it's called. It's a little circle yeah. that you'll see, and it lists the facility number. Okay. No big deal. It's it's inspected product. You can ship it wherever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, we went one step further, and actually the fulfillment center we have at the ranch is health department certified. We, have the, we carry the same certification as a grocery store. Mm-hmm. The interesting part, and this is where the barrier to entry, I think, really plays, is a rancher doing 10 or 20 head a year doesn't want to deal with that kind of stuff. Right. You don't want to deal with the health department. You don't want, you, you probably don't have the profitability to build a fulfillment center. Like, right. So now you're skirting lines that could have potentially very high levels of liability. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets really dodgy. And that was where, uh, when Kara and I founded the company, we said, we are not playing in that space. Right. We are just, we're going full send. And if we fall on our face, we fall on our face. You know, we can we can afford it if it falls apart. But we we made a very intentional move to make it that level, mm-hmm. uh, and it's hard to do. I mean, it's it's not an easy move. Like right, no. And what you guys are doing, obviously, you're not shipping perishable product, but right. And you start throwing down checks with with commas on them and a lot of numbers and buying right. equipment and making bets. Like, um, I mean. I've got a lot of gray hair. I think you've got me beat, but you, you're probably 36. You just look like you're not 36. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's the joke I make with a lot of people is I'm only 27. I just look 40. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the 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 thing that I've also talked, uh, you know, I have a friend here locally, uh, two, two Crick Cattle Company. They're, they're a ranch up here out of Ovando. It's where my kids buy their 4-H steers. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been selling a fair amount of meat just from their ranch here locally. And the big challenge to, you know, let's just say with a rancher, like, well, why don't you throw in a big cooler and start selling your own meat? Well, let's face it. Most people that are ordering beef online are ordering like the prime steaks, Mm -hmm. like the best steaks. The middle meats. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the rest of that animal, right? And the amount of other, other cuts of meat and burger and all that stuff. So like in order to, let's just say you, you slaughter, uh, you know, 50 head of cattle and you sell all the, all the ribeyes out of those and, you know, prime rib and whatever you're going to be selling out of those. You still have an absolute shit ton of meat out that's left on that carcass that isn't necessarily like, you know, going to sell at the rate that the prime ones are, that mm-hmm. the, they're, that the best, uh, best steaks are. Um, and so finding that outlet to balance that with your operation where you don't end up with, you know, thousands of pounds of burger and, cube steaks and whatever. How, how do you guys manage that? So we, uh, Little Belt did a great job on that, putting up their food truck mm-hmm. and moving burger through that. We did kind of the same thing, only we don't own the food truck. I went and found food trucks and sell them burger. Yeah. So same concept. but So same with this guy. He's selling it to restaurants. Yeah. And, and you can do that. Because they go through tons of burger. Yeah. And the biggest problem is, and Greg's figured this out, I've, I've chosen not to try to go down that road, is you get with a restaurant, they're like, we want 100 pounds of ribeyes a week. Yeah. Well, sweet. 
but you realize the whole cow is not made out of ribeyes, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it would be better. <laughs> um, the funniest uh, harvest facility story I've heard from one of our guys is somebody came in and dropped off their steer to do custom butcher. And she's like, I need 50 pounds of flat iron steaks, 30 pounds of ribeyes, and grind the rest. And they're like, you realize that's not how that works, right? Yeah. <laughs> and she looked at them like they were crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's so what we've done, like if you peruse through the website, um, you'll find the griller box, you'll find the variety box, you'll find the comfort cooking box. Um, I went through as the recovering private equity guy, and I ran a bunch of math and said, if we're going to bring down our inventory levels at an even pace, mm-hmm. we got to move a little bit of burger with everything. We got to do this. Yep. And we did that for the first few years. And then we, I think it was last summer, we launched the Steak Lovers box, Just Buy Steak. Mm-hmm. Number one seller on the website overnight. I mean, all day long. Uh, so now it's okay. We're moving burger in a different direction. What else can we do with trim? Uh, so like we have summer sausage. I think Little Belt did some summer sausage too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just trying to find those ability that the ability to move product and yeah. you know put it into different market. Or for instance, if you go into summer sausage and it's shelf stable, now you don't need freezer space because that's your biggest problem. Right. So it's just any number of those operational questions. You know, where are you going to put everything that's coming through? Um, but then it also becomes, you know, how do you move to what the market wants? Mm-hmm. Because uh, I love all my brothers and sisters in agriculture. I've worked in ag my whole career. But if you're harvesting 20 head, you don't have time to optimize all that. Right. And and it's unfortunate because everybody should be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the number of people that are like, we sell half beef. So I'm like, great, that's cool. But we don't sell that many bulk orders. Be, and I've and people have asked, well, why don't you push on that more? I said, because the people that want to buy a half of beef probably already have somebody they buy from. Right. Like, yeah, and it's, I mean, if, if you're if you want to buy a half of beef from you guys, and somebody lives, you know, thousand miles away, you know, that's a that's a that's a pretty big ch- uh, shipping challenge there as well. Like uh, we, we've beef. got that figured out. We ship yeah. halves of Florida. So how how you know the shipping was going to be one thing. I want to ask you, you know, how you guys do that because, um, you know, that's also a big challenge for people is like you need a certain price per pound to make a living and then you start to tack shipping onto it and it becomes, you know, a bit difficult for the customer to to want to justify that versus buying it in a store. And my, and my argument, it's kind of like with our American-made products that we do, right? Like there's cheaper knives out there, mm-hmm. right? But there's a segment of the population of the country that I think is bigger than ever right now that is willing to pay a bit more for the quality that they want, the connection to the, to the uh, company and the people within it um, that are willing to pay a little bit more. And they, and they understand and know that like to do this, to do what we're doing or to do what you're doing, you know, it, it, it costs money and it costs a bit more for that end product. But how, how did you guys solve the, the shipping thing? Cause you're shipping a lot of weight. Yeah. Like we ship, we ship these light little knives and it's awesome. And then we'll drop cutting boards and it's like, oh shit, look at our shipping bill. <laughs> right. Uh, well, luckily, uh, when we first started, we started with UPS. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but in 2019, when Amazon announced that they were going to start doing their own shipping, FedEx and UPS parted ways almost overnight, which means everything FedEx was doing for Amazon went to UPS, totally detonated UPS's yep. model, hosed us completely, like, fall of 19 we've switched to fedex we ran with fedex for the last three years and just hammer them on pricing i mean 
hey, this is what we're shipping. Oh, hey, look, see how volume's going up? Give me better pricing. Mm-hmm. But again, to, to the comment of time, if you're running a full-time ranch and this isn't where you're making your money, you don't have time to make those calls. Right. Um, so drive that, turn it down. Um, and luckily, as we've grown, you guys have probably seen this in MKC, our scale of economy is better. Right. We're feeding cattle at a more reasonable price point. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've, we've purchased Arbus facility. We can be a little more streamlined. Mm-hmm. So luckily, as we've grown, we've been able to capture as much of that internal margin as we can to then pass it on to the customer. Sure. Uh, but the shipping side was very much a, oh, how do you describe it? It was a nightmare, to be quite frank. Um, I've made the joke, uh, it was 2019, 2020, I forgot. Got, had a horse fall down with me, separated the hell out of my shoulder. Three months later, got hit in the face with an oil pipe gate, and, like broke the bone on the side of my nose and tore my eyelid all to hell. And those were still both better than dealing with FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, you know, when they fail on a package, you got to stay on them. Um, you know, audit the audit the invoices. It was a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, we finally got to the point now we switched back to UPS this summer mm. um, because FedEx was just falling apart. We were having big issues. They wouldn't make good on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could spend an hour talking about that. Yeah. But we switched back to UPS, and now we're shipping enough. We have a dedicated person. I have his cell phone number. Mm-hmm. If I get an email I don't like or a package is delayed, I screenshot it and I text it to him and I don't do anything else. Yeah. So you have to get to the point that you're limiting that risk. Right. But it's not just shipping. It's all of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's every every step you make, how can you materially drop the risk? Even if it's 2 or 3% on five different processes, now you're 10% less risky. Yeah. Uh, and that continual improvement model yep. is hard to manage. But if you do it right, you can really put yourself in a good spot. Well, and, and the thing is, is with anything that you're doing, whether wh- whatever business, whether it's your business or ours, uh, you know, you, you have to choose your battles and you have to choose the order that you fight them in. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just you cannot win the war without winning all the little battles in the middle, you know, yeah. in the beginning. So I know for us, there's all kinds of things we want to do better. There's all kinds of things we want to optimize, um, you know, stuff that we – we need to research and look into and, and track down. But, um, but it's just, I, I kind of, I've equated this a lot, like running from a forest fire and you just spray water on what the hottest part that's burning you at that moment is. Mm-hmm. You can't put out the entire fire. I believe there's a guy that says prioritize and execute. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know that guy. Yeah. But, so how did that partnership with, uh, with Jocko and origin and, you know, Pete and all those guys come about? Uh, just man, having good relationships, mm-hmm. building integrity, you know, being able to point at, you know, we, we met Andy, we went on Andy's podcast and we worked with Glover and not to name drop people, but you have to build a reputation. Yeah. Um, and then you have to get on the phone and not sound like an idiot. Um, Brian actually made a comment to me jokingly. He's like, man, he goes, the first time we were going to get on a call, I said, he goes, I didn't expect to ever have to talk to you again. Yeah. I figured you're going to be some dumb rancher, you know, hey, sticking out of your mouth and, he jumped on and we had a pitch deck and I said, here's where we're at. This is what we're doing. And he was like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Let's get after it. So, you know, we had to do real business. Mm-hmm. You know, you aren't going to look at a guy like Brian and say, Hey, you should roll this to Jocko. Here's something on a napkin. He's going to laugh you out of the room. Right. Um, and luckily coming from a private equity background, I was able to have that done. Um, but that, that's where I think a lot of people that want to chase their passion and, and, 
you know, build the American dream. They don't understand that there is so much time and thought just sitting around thinking and putting things down on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so much planning. If if you if if you do not plan properly in the beginning. And, and, and there's so many scenarios and you have to think through everything. Like, what if this goes wrong? What if, what if that, you have to have a contingency for every, everything. Mm -hmm. Well, so the interesting part is when we first started talking to Mike, the owner of the harvest facility, it was a year and a half before I talked to the guys from Chaco Fuel. Yeah. Well, we had to get that side of the deal done before I could even go look for money. Right. Right. You have to understand the process. It's, you don't build the the stem walls of a building until the footing's in the ground. It just there's a process. Yes, and it's it's second nature to me now because of my background and what I've done. But it's crazy scary to people that haven't done a fundraise, that haven't done these things. Right. Um, but we had some other financiers that had looked at the project and were interested. And I was I listened to a lot of Jocko's stuff, mm-hmm. and I I listened to a podcast with him and Pete from Origin, mm-hmm. and I sent it to my wife. And I didn't say anything about it. I just sent it to her. And she read, she listened to it. And she asked me, she's like, what'd you send that to me for? I said, well, why do you think? And she's like, I think that's our story. I said, it absolutely is our story. Mm-hmm. You know, Pete was told, you can't do this. You're going to be too small. You won't compete. I mean, probably the same things you heard. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're going to make knives and sell them for how much? There's no way in hell you're going to do that. Right. Um, and I said, Kara, I think I'm going to reach out to these guys. Mm-hmm. She goes, what the, how the hell are you going to do that? I was like, mm-hmm. I'll figure it out. Yeah. And uh, made a couple of reach outs, got the right connections, and got an intro call. Mm-hmm. And from and mind you, I was a year and a half deep in the deal at that point. Mm-hmm. 13 more months later, we closed. Right. It's a two and a half year deal. Right. It's five and a half percent of my life gone in that one deal. That doesn't come without a lot of gray hair. It doesn't come without, you know, potential ulcers. And it sucks. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of this. Uh, you can use analogies for a lot of things, but there's there's a lot of things that we do in, in business. Uh, what, what, one of uh, our board members said, you know, we were talking about investment, like if we ever want to take that on down the road. And we've discussed what that's about or like selling your company and all these different things, right? And, uh, and I don't really have any interest in that until, uh, you know, like with investment and stuff mm-hmm. like that, until there's, there comes a point down the road where it's obvious that that's the only way for us to potentially scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to bootstrap until there are just, there are no more, no other options. And that's but, what we did. But with scaling, uh, like with investment, like with what you did, uh, it, a lot like with like deep sea fishing, it's not necessarily that hard to get the fish on the line. And it's actually not even that hard to get the fish to the boat, but it's amazing how hard it is to get the fish in the boat. That right? is the best way I've heard that described. And 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 there are a ton of deals that get lost right at the boat. Mm-hmm. And you know that's how uh, it was described to me with investment is you can think you're all the way through to the point where you're gonna you're gonna sign somebody up, you're gonna have investment and all these millions of dollars hit your company or, or even people that go to sell companies, they can think their company's worth a certain dollar amount and get all the way to the end of it and put hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars over a couple of years into a deal and think they're about to strike it rich and something happens and the person walks away. I'll, I've got a funny story for you. I'll tell you offline. I yeah. just had a conversation with one of my equity buddies that big dollars, long story, but I'll tell you offline. I don't want to share it here. Yeah. Um, but you know, the way that it was described to me 
uh, when I was in equity, I asked, I asked one of my on or one of my mentors and I said, man, so what is the hit rate on this? He goes, you're going to look at a hundred decks. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to do 10 of them. And if you're lucky, you'll get one closed. Yeah. He said, it is an exceptionally low hit rate. Yeah. Especially in the small game. Like if you're a black rock or you're somebody else and you're playing in that money game, right. Their whole deal is to deploy capital. Because mm-hmm. if it meets these certain criteria, they know there's a bell curve. Some of them are going to go 10x. Some of them are going to go zero. Right. Some of them are going to do three to five. But over the span, and you've, you know, to your fishing metaphor, you've got enough lines out there. You won't go broke. Right. Um, but that's a, it's a capital question. That's a yeah, risk but if, question. But if you're Colorado Craft Beef or MKC and you have one line in the water, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 and that's where companies and people have to be careful about how much time and and how much, how reliant they are on that one line, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, to your point, that's that's really where we got to with the beef company was we need to own the harvest facility. Yeah. Because what we were doing prior to that was we were speaking, I mean, I heard you and Greg talk about this. We're, the harvest dates we were using last month, we spoke for in 2021. Yeah. Because we didn't own the facility. Right. Well, we're growing like crazy. That'd yeah, be like meat it's, selling. It's, it's, it's the same with us with, you know, the, we don't make every single part on our knives, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we want to bring more and more of those things in house. And the, I don't care if you're running a, uh, you know, a beef business like you are, or you're, you're making knives or, or whatever you're doing. If you don't control the entire process, you're now beholden to, you know, to those vendors. Right. And mm-hmm. um, this has actually been, a huge part of our discussions in the last couple of weeks because we're looking at buying land. We're looking at building a building. We're trying to decide what processes we, uh, you know, it, what, what processes uh, should we attack first? Cause we can't attack them all. Sure. Right? There again, we have to, f- which battle do we fight next? Mm-hmm. And, and when you're outsourcing for parts to come in, it's amazing because if just one part of that process doesn't deliver, if there's 17 parts on a folding knife, and and you're you're outsourcing seven of them and you're making the other ones and just one of those pieces doesn't go right whether it's on our side or a supplier then the entire the entire thing is down Mm -hmm. and you know it's interesting because like with cutting up beef and stuff like even here locally if you want your 4-h beef cut up uh you know your backup steer backup hog cut up in august right at the fair time you have to schedule that in like january february well i can't imagine you know, if we were starting our beef company and MKC was a beef company and we're scheduling that out and then all of a sudden we have a ton of growth and we call the, the you know, butcher shop and say, we need to double the amount of animals we're bringing you. And they're like, no, we can't do that. That's a that's a very cute request, but yeah. no. Yeah, and then that's, what? Yeah, and that's where we got to is, and my wife did not want to have a harvest facility. Yeah. She, well, she didn't want to have a feed yard. We got that done. <laughs> I just keep, keep pushing things off the cliff, right? Yeah. And, and I told her, I said, do we really have a business if we can't get cattle harvested? Right. Because, you know, I like Mike. He's now our business partner. That's probably the coolest part of the deal. Mike reinvested and stayed on to run the harvest facility for us. Mm-hmm. We had no changes. The whole the whole team was fired at 5 o'clock and rehired at 5.01. Right. We didn't miss a day of production. That was That was my most excited. That was the most exciting part of the whole thing. Yeah. Because we kept all those people employed. You know, Mike and his family now have more opportunity and we're all doing it together. Mm-hmm. That collaborative mindset was really cool. But I asked my wife, I said, do we really have a business? You know, what if Mike decides we suck? I said that yesterday. What if what if our supplier just decides 
man, MKC's been paying me well for the last eight months. We're crushing. I got more money in my bank account than I've ever had. I'm going to go deep sea fishing for a month. Yeah. Like, or I'm, I'm going to raise take, their price 30%. You know, or what if that guy, you know, he, he's out snowboarding and breaks his leg or breaks his back or whatever, and he mm-hmm. can't he can't work for us for six months. Like, you know, you're so, you're, you're right. Like, and especially in like a butcher shop uh, situation that's so physical and whatnot, like mm-hmm. there's a good chance that one piece in that messes up, you know, or, or maybe, maybe the competing beef place down the road just comes in with a better, a better deal for them. Mm-hmm. And they just say, yeah, you're, you're, you know, Colorado, you're to the back of the line. And that's, and that's the conversation my wife and I had. I said, yeah. we are to a point now this business is getting enough steam behind it. We can't have that risk. Right. And especially once you bring on investors and other people into it. Well, that was know. where the investor money came in to your point about not wanting to bring in outside capital. Yeah. Very much our conversation. Mm-hmm. But when you need to make that jump in scale, right. that jump in size, now you, you're bringing on 20 employees. That is a, that is a big elephant to eat. It is a hundred percent. And yeah. you know, where, where we made the switch to work with those guys was you can get money. Money's not that hard to find. Mm-hmm. Are they going to help the business? Right. Oh, wait, there's this, there's this That's, group of people that yeah. already does direct to consumer and has blitz scaled a ton of right. stuff. And they have a platform and well, and the business knowledge in that group, man, you talk to them for 20 minutes on your phone. You're like, man, I thought I was actually kind of good at this stuff. I kind of feel like I'm missing the ball. Well, think about how many things that Pete has actually failed at and, and, and how many things that he has had that he's done that that he wouldn't do again, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're, you're tapping into a wealth of knowledge of like, you know, like, hey, don't do that because we tried that two years ago and it was, you know, we lost a couple hundred grand over that, right? And, yep. and that the, the other part about, it's so funny you say that about the money. I am not interested. Like we have people come at us, you know, wanting to invest in MKC. I don't need their their dollars. What I need is knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if, if someone came to us that wanted to be involved every single day and help grow the company from, uh, you know, connections, knowledge, whatever, that's a different conversation, but to just write a check and walk away and then, and then say, Hey, every quarter I expect some, I expect some money, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's not the money necessarily that, that businesses need. Obviously there are times you need the money, right? But like, when you can find investment and then find also people that align with your values and have a platform with their, with their connections and their Instagram and whatever to help drive the business. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's the perfect storm. Yeah. You know, and that's why we went the way we did. Yeah. And man, it's been nuts. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So how has that been like the, and how has it been like keeping up with that, with that production and scaling? Cause you, you know, it's, it's interesting. You don't, like with, with manufacturing, <clears throat> in theory, you can just add some more employees to it and make more knives per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but cattle's a little different situation. I mean, to you know, you, you can, you're only feeding so many cattle right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if your demand explodes, that process is kind of long, getting a, getting a calf to a point where it's ready for butcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we are, the, the good thing for us, we've always harvested year-round. Mm-hmm. So now it's just a matter of where's the ramp take you. Mm-hmm. Um, so to your point, you know, having a big explosion, our head of marketing, uh, his name's Jay, a retired Marine machine gunner, mm-hmm. weirdest marketing guy ever, right? Yeah. Uh, it's great when he calls you, he's like, hey, I don't like this. I'm fixing it like that. Yeah. Roger, 
do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, that's what you need. Oh, he, he's great. He came on with us uh, as a contractor in October of 21, and he was crushing it. Or, excuse me, October of 20. Nah, anyway. His second year with the company, he was crushing it so well, we turned off all marketing for six months. Really? Yeah. Jeez. And when I told Brian that, he's like, bro, we need to not do that. I said, yeah. that's where I'm at. I said, I understand. But this is why we are buying the harvest facility. He's like, totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the good news is, since we live in cattle country, we live in cattle feeding country, uh, we have our own network around us. Mm-hmm. Um, we are able to start to surge that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our business partners is actually my business partner in the feed yard. He's a commodity trader. Okay. He has a network of people so we can have additional cattle on feed. And if they aren't going to make it into CCB, we have other avenues for them. Sure. But it's building those contingencies. You know, you can't be hand to mouth with product, but then you also have to consider that fat cattle right now are $2,500 a piece. They're not cheap. Right. Uh, you know, feeding them every day is not cheap, not to mention labor equipment, all those things. You know, when you got front end loaders and feed trucks running around, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Um, but it's just trying to optimize everything. Mm-hmm. Because what's interesting to me in the ag space, everybody wants to maximize. How big is this steer? How many bushels do I get per acre? I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Optimize. Right. What is your return per pound of fertilizer? What is your what is your feed efficiency? You aren't trying to maximize everything because then you're going to break the system. Right. And you need to be efficient, like just everything you have going downstairs. Right. Probably when it's running well, like, or being on a job site. That's what I used to love, being in the earthwork space. Mm-hmm. You could be walking around on a job site, building the building pad over here, putting sewer in over here. And if you listen, you can hear the music, mm-hmm. right? You can hear the swing of the excavator. You can hear the, the blade. You can hear the guy with the laser. And when it's running well, it runs great. Mm-hmm. But if you try to maximize one of those machines, it throws everything else out of whack. Right. And that's one of the things I humbly think we've been really good at mm-hmm. is trying to find that har- that harmony of sure. pulling, you know, the best ways to grow cattle and putting it in the middle and right. pulling the best ways to process and put it in the middle and then growing things at a reasonable rate, but not trying to hit a home run every day. Right. You know? Right. I never played football, but I had some buddies that played football that said, man, three yards every play still wins. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what what is the what's the what's the big five to ten year goal for for you guys? I think it's too early to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some new products we're getting ready to roll out. Be happy to send you guys some samples when we get them going. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the partnerships open up so many opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. The big thing right now is to meter meter what's coming through the dam mm-hmm. and start to kind of move things around. You know, we brought on new employees immediately. We took some part-time people, made them full-time. Um, so it gave us an ability to really start to twist the, the company from owner-operated to owner-run. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say I wasn't packing beef boxes on Saturday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like the picture we put up of the boxes that went out with you guys, like yeah. that came from my phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad happened to be in Colorado for Thanksgiving, so he helped pack boxes all day on Saturday. Yeah. He was like, that's a lot of boxes. I was like, it was a good day, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh for people that don't know. We we <clears throat> implemented. We haven't really talked about it, uh, kind of on purpose. But we implemented a kind of a VIP program here at MKC where we <clears throat> we've measured uh, 
and again, kind of build a spreadsheet out at different dollar amounts that people have spent with us. And there's kind of varying degrees of packages of stuff that we've shipped out to our best customers, um, from more of an entry level to a, to a real, real high level. And in one of the levels, uh, those people are getting, uh, like a soft Yeti cooler and some other things and they're getting, uh, unfortunately we're not, well, it doesn't really matter, but we're not shipping it from here. We're having you guys at Colorado Craft Beef uh, ship boxes of meat um, to the customer. The, the The idea originally was like, well, we'll get all this meat and we'll put it in these Yetis and ship it. And then like logistically, like what a pain in the ass for us, right? Mm-hmm. Getting all this meat in and storing it and then trying to ship it. And so you guys were gracious enough to just, <clears throat> uh, you know, say we'll take on the, you know, the, 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 the efforts there of shipping the meat side of it. And we ship the cooler and the other stuff to them. Um, but the reactions of people of that uh, is, is so, so cool. And, and a, another part of this program that we love at all these different levels, it's friends of our brand, mm-hmm. right? It's for it's, and there's people at levels that have really helped us. And now we're able to share our best customers with uh, brands that we respect, right. That are in our network. And, and so like you guys, for example, are getting customers names and addresses of great customers of ours. And hopefully the idea is, is that they love what they get from you. And, you know, I'm sure most of them probably have never heard of you and they're going to check out your website or your Instagram. And, and ideally some of those people just become customers of yours. And quite frankly, people that are at that level and getting that package are some of our really, really good customers, Mm -hmm. you know, so obviously they can afford good knives I'm sure they have probably a high standard of the food that they buy and they eat. So um, ideally it turns into a good deal for you, but yeah, you probably don't use an MKC knife to cut up a Wendy's cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, it's been cool. And it's, and it's just the reaction of our customers of saying like, you know, with at every level that we ship that stuff out, like no companies do this because mm-hmm. it was just completely unannounced three years in, and we, we, we took all the data from all of our customers for the entire first three years of our company, not just like this last 12 months. That's awesome. So this is a cumulative deal from day one. So the people who supported us that entire time, because a lot of those people bought a lot of that stuff in year one and two, and maybe they haven't bought as much this year. And, you know, there's people getting stuff and they're like, I haven't bought a knife in a year. And it's like, well, yeah, but you bought a knife when it probably mattered to us most, mm-hmm. which is in the very, very beginning, which is cool. Well, and I mean, if they're buying your knives, right, it's, it's not like they expect them to wear out in a year. I mean, right. Right. Good. I mean, maybe some outfitters go through a couple knives a year, but mm-hmm. I'd be shocked if the average weekend warrior goes through that. Right. Yeah, for sure. So with, with your guys's uh, business, do you guys have like a subscription model too, where people can kind of just get a certain amount of steaks or meat sent to them on kind of a routine schedule? Yeah, we've got that. Um, we're actually turning that off next week because we have a new website dropping right after Christmas. Okay. And all the subscriptions in the system will not port over to the new system. Mm. So we're trying to slow play that a little bit. Then we're going to move everybody over to the new system. But the new subscriptions on the website will get a bigger discount to subscribe. Mm. Um, so it's it's like you guys, man, so many moving parts. It's like, where do you where do you find the time to manage all of it? To sleep is totally overrated. Yeah, um, <laughs> as you see me yawning here. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's not that you're boring me. It's yeah. just that there's not much sleep these days. Yeah. Well, with, with the subscription deal, I mean, that's something I'm I'm kind of jealous of, of these different business models that people have. Like, 
if you can get somebody into a subscription, well, like the it's Ev- that annuity that just keeps coming and coming and coming. Well, like Evans Coffee Club, right? right. Or EC, I think it's ECS. Yeah. And you know, Evan at Black Rifle, they've they've crushed it. But mm-hmm. I, I think you guys could probably do a subscription model with something that's not knives. Right. Um right. you know, merch, hats. You right. probably have some other stuff you could mix in there. Yeah. Um I, I think there's an opportunity there. I mean, the hard part is who needs four really nice knives every year? Right. <laughs> Hopefully everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, with with beef, I mean that's the thing, right? Coffee, you know, food, um, you know, especially premium, premium steaks and burger. I mean, we, my family, we go through so much burger. It's unbelievable, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, we're fortunate because we live in an area of the country that's a little bit easier to, you know, most pl- people out here have, you know, a garage and a, a little bit more space, but sure. quite honestly, most of the country doesn't have the ability to own a chest freezer. Right. And, you know, we, we, ha- we raise 4-H, you know, steers, so then we're, we're butchering an extra beef every year. We kind of always have a backup steer in case mm-hmm. something goes wrong, right? And a backup, we, always, we always did the same thing growing backup up. Backup hog. Yep. Um, you know, and then hopefully we get an elk or something like that. But that's the very, very tiny minority of the country that, that has the ability to do that. Um, there's so many people living in apartments, and I, I think of my sister for years, she lived in an apartment in Seattle, and she was literally shopping for her dinner every other day. Well, that's day. that's standard in Europe, right? Yeah. Have you spent much time over there? A little like, bit, yeah. Like their refrigerators right. are the size of what we would call a beer fridge. Yeah, these farmers markets that we you know happen once a week here, it is an everyday. Like that's how people buy their food. They go down on the street, not far from their apartment building, and walk through the fresh food market. And yeah, well, get my, their food and go home and cook it. My wife spent a summer in Germany on an AQHA American Quarter Horse Association fellowship. Yeah. And she had to beg the family to give her like the smallest corner of the fridge for beer. Cause yeah. she's like, well, these Germans, they drink 9% beer and it's warm. Yeah. And she's, it, it fascinated her cause she grew up as a rancher's daughter. I mean, I think Dave has three freezers full of just whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you got potatoes, you got some canned vegetables and you got all the beef you could ever want. And so much of the world doesn't operate like that. It's what it's what's actually really so scary about our situation as a nation is that, you know, uh, if if we have an actual emergency like like not a fake one like COVID, but a real one, mm-hmm. um, look at how fast the stores emptied and what happened with the shelves during COVID. Sure, if we have a legit actual emergency and people realize like, oh shit this is not good, right? Or half the country loses power or whatever happens in that emergency. Imagine how fast those store shelves will go, go empty. Well, and once the trucks stop. Yeah. So I actually did this math. Uh, you know, who Bradley is the sales guy out of Vegas. I don't. Okay. I was on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he and I were, he's a money guy. He's a business guy. And so I had a ton of different stats that we were just bouncing numbers back and forth. Yeah. How many cows do you think are consumed in the city of New York? Just New York proper every day. Oh God. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess twenty thousand. It's six. Six thousand. Six thousand. Six thousand cows seven days a week. So six thousand, if if a rancher tells me in Montana they own six thousand head, mm-hmm. that's a legit like that's that's a top five operation. For sure. 
Um, like, I think the average size of the cow herd, if you have a cow herd in the U.S., the average size is in the 30s. It's small. Okay, yeah, I was going to say like 60 would be. Yeah. yeah, well, the problem is define a herd. Right, is it cow and calf? Is it just a cow? Yeah. Is it bulls? Yeah. Yeah, but it's it, the people that, I think the last time I looked at the math, if you were going to feed a family of four off the income from cows, you needed to have around 300 pairs. Yeah. That's not a small investment. No, like that's, today that's six hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's and that's out walking around in an area where you guys live, where there's wolves, and right. where we live, where there's tornadoes and lightning. Right. But yeah, to your point with New York City, I mean, I was just there a few days ago. Sure. Um, Congrats on the Fox News thing, by the yeah, way. That's thanks. awesome, man. Thanks. Uh, it it boggles my mind walking around just seeing like it. It's actually quite claustrophobic, and it's kind of scary. I mean, I was there on Thanksgiving night, right? I flew in there, so Macy's Day Parade, and there was actually a lot of a lot of talk about, you know, security, and there, there's just a lot of scary shit going on right now. And I don't care how capable you are. If you're in New York City and shit goes down as a country, uh, you, are, you are absolutely at the mercy of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, your only ways in and out are on bridges and tunnels, and, you know, you got 15 million people or whatever panicking, right? And, and there's just, and, and they, you know, the, the, the lack of the, the, that the velocity of what the food would leave the shelves in that city. And then to your point, if the trucks can't operate, if they can't run, if, if we were out of power and trucks couldn't fuel up, mm-hmm. trucks are only going to go three or four or 500 miles on the 40 or 80 gallons of diesel they're hauling. And they're not going to make a one-way trip. <laughs> no. They're not going to leave knowing they can't get back. Right. And if, if shit's actually that bad, they're going home to their family anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing, like, with truckers, um, people bitch about trucks and stuff on the highway and cutting them off. And, man, I, I, I've i driven commercial vehicles since I was, you know, a kid. Yeah. You try, you know, I mean, my daughter actually and I were talking about it. In New York City, there was, a um, like, five cement mixers lined up on a like apartment building complex right off of Times Square. And I was like, God, can you imagine being a cement truck driver in this city? Oh, my God. You couldn't pay me enough. No. Oh, my God. I mean, just driving a car through there is a pain in the ass. I had a guy that worked for me in Minnesota when I was with Cargill, and he was a former Pepsi driver in Vegas. Dude, that guy could hit a dime on a 90-degree corner, no question. Best truck driver I've ever seen. Yeah. And and he goes, yeah, man, if you're dodging dodging idiots for 15 years in Vegas with a 40-foot trailer, I'm like, I've pulled trailers my whole life, and I have zero desire to even attempt that. Yeah. Just no, I agree. No interest. I agree. So, yeah, it's it's scary with our supply chain, with our food. And, 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 you know, and quite honestly, I don't blame a lot of the people, the people that live in those areas. I mean, they're living in an apartment. They only have so much room. So mm-hmm. um, the, food, the food thing really would become a really scary situation in a hurry and an emergency, you know? Um, Well, but if the power goes out and now well pump or water pumps go out and your system isn't charged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's the, the cascading effect of a lot of these things, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be, you know, regulation on an industry. Mm -hmm. What's that going to do three layers down the chain? You know, at the top level, it sounds great, but you don't understand how it hits at the ground level. Right. Same concept if we have an issue in a in a major city during, you know, some event. Um, like, actually, the company I used to work for out of Iowa, when 9-11 happened, we had, I wasn't with the company at the time, but I've heard the story from the guys who were there. 
they were in Vegas for a packing for, for a packaging show, and they all live in Iowa. Mm-hmm. They they rented a van and drove from Vegas to Des Moines. Yeah, because that was the only solution. Right. Well, okay, but the system's still running. Right. right. They shut off airplanes. And it was still a crazy, crazy time. Aside from all the catastrophe of that situation, but now kill power. Right. You can't rent a car because the computers won't work. Yeah, I've said that as, as you know, I was a lineman, and so I kind of know some of the stuff about how precarious the situation is and could be. And, you know, I hear people say, like, well, I'd just I'd come to Montana. I'd escape, you know, California and just head to the head to the mountains. And it's like, well, you'd drive about as far as your gas uh, tank in its current state right now would take you. Mm-hmm. That's where you'd end up. Right. Which is probably fall short, far short of Montana or Idaho. You're going to end up in Elko, Nevada. Exactly. <laughs> with, yeah. With no gas and just nobody brush. wants you to be there. Yeah. Sagebrush yeah. and some cowboy poetry. Yeah. Or or think if you're in Las Vegas and yeah. something bad happens. There's no food produced around there. Yeah. And it's a it's a consumptive city. Right. What happens? So that's that's why I do I do encourage people. There are a lot of people though that do have the room to even put like a little half chest freezer or mm-hmm. something in their house, and um, and they're cheap. Y- too. You know, with food, it's a lot like a gas tank, right? It doesn't cost any more to keep the top half of your gas tank full as it does the bottom half, mm-hmm. right? So even with food, and that's how I look at our chest freezers and stuff too. Is like at at a certain point. You know, if you have the ability to have some kind of food storage, um, you know, tr- try to figure out a way to fill that thing up full of food and then rotate that food through that thing, but keep it full. Mm-hmm. And you will be in the top 1% of the nation if shit goes south. Mm-hmm. If you have enough food for even two weeks. Yeah. You know. Because yeah, if it's after two weeks, things are real bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think that's, what, you know, buddies with Glover and... I've talked to him about this a few times and I'm like, man, like where do you draw the line at preparedness? Okay. Yeah, it's weird because like the crazier things get as a country, and I don't consider myself like a quote unquote prepper. You don't have a tinfoil hat? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I'm thinking of making one. Okay. Um I mean you got the tools. You could probably make a sweet tinfoil nice hat. One. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll start selling tinfoilhat.com. That's your next subscription item. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, no, it's it's uh it actually with a lot of what goes on in the, and I think part of it is like having kids and being resp- more responsible for other people under your own roof. And when you're in your twenties, it's like, oh, who cares? I'll figure it out. But, mm-hmm. um, I do, I have in the last couple of years become, and I don't definitely, I think I'm falling short of being all the way there, but, but a lot more prepared for something like that. I mean, I told my wife, like it costs a few hundred bucks to go to Costco and stack up on like, beans and rice and some things that like keep forever. Mm-hmm. Right. And we did, we filled up a couple tubs with some stuff and whatnot. It's a few hundred bucks. It lasts forever. It, you know, like flour and sugar and stuff like that. And there again, my wife actually, you know, I told her don't go buy like the, a giant sack, go buy a, a bunch of five pound bags mm-hmm. and then just use them and right. just keep replenishing them. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure we have uh, a, a stock of stuff, you know, and if and again, we're only talking about a few hundred dollars worth of stuff. I'm not. I'm not building myself a bunker mm-hmm. yet. Yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a good spot picked out though. There you go. Yeah, the hill right going down to our chicken coop would be a perfect place for a bunker. I've thought this out. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually. I've thought about more about building ourselves building ourselves a cellar. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you know just for food storage and 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 whatnot. But 
Yeah, the, the, the more that happens, the more you start to think about preparedness. And, and I think Glover does a really good job of talking about it without seeming like a kook, mm-hmm. you know. For sure. Um, because I think mentally, I've talked to my kids about preparedness, and I've told them some of the things I've done and whatnot, but I also don't want to go so kooky that you make them worried and stressed about life. Yeah. Like, live life. If shit gets goes south, we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know. Well, you've got to teach a little resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. You can't you don't want to teach them to be scared. You want to teach them to be capable. Right. And capable could be any number of things. You could be doing jujitsu, you could be shooting well, you could, you know, just have the right tools. Um yeah. but I think it's about just thinking through it. Mm-hmm. Like we live at the end of the power line. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go anywhere past our house. So we have obviously we have big welders that we, you know, weld steel pipe together with for fencing, mm-hmm. et cetera. Well, our house is set up that I can go over and kill the main breaker coming through the transformers, and I can plug in and run a teeter-totter switch and run our whole place right. off a welder. Right. Well, what's the next level? Oh, well, how long does that welder run on gas? Right. Okay, I got a seven-gallon tank. It'll run, or excuse me, a five-gallon tank. It'll run like seven and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, how much gas do I need? Right. Now, at some point, you hit the line of tinfoil hat. Right. At some point, you're just trying not to be a dumbass. Right. Yeah. That, I flirt with that line a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, uh, with your beef, uh, with your beef production and, and, and what you guys are doing, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about this whole dilemma between like grass fed beef and, you know, we, we feed our steers out with grain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's, what's your, and most feedlots, that's what, that's the whole point of a feedlot is to, is to feed really quite frankly, the, point of a feedlot is to feed cattle out as the, as fast as rain as possible in the shortest amount of time to get them through to the next to the you know to the butcher shop sure um you know for the feedlot for them to make money how do they feed something out and and get it in and out and and hit their marks as as efficiently as possible but what are your what are your thoughts on like the quality and the grade of beef and the health aspects and all these things and all these debates between grass fed and grain fed and corn fed? Mm-hmm. The hard part. I was actually looking at this at the hotel this morning because the definitions change all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. It seems like the definition of grass fed is chasing the industry because mm-hmm. in 2016 the USDA quit regulating the term grass fed. Because it was too myopic. It was too hard to regulate. Yeah. Okay, well, that in and of itself makes it awkward, right? Um, so if we get rid of the labels, because the labels, quite frankly, most of the labels in the food industry are generated by the big food manufacturers. Mm-hmm. So they have something to sell with. Mm-hmm. Um, in the typical cattle space in the U.S., almost all cattle are grass-fed at some point. Right. Like They're on pasture. They're on pasture, and, and the, the old definition of grass-fed was a diet uh, absent of grain. So you could feed beet pulp, you could feed peas, you could feed any number of things that just weren't grain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the typical process in the U.S. is cattle are uh, birthed at a, at a ranch, when then they're on mother's side, and then they're weaned. And in a lot of places, they will go to uh, a grower yard. Mm-hmm. which is like a feed yard, looks just the same. You're feeding different rations, different formulations of rations. It's usually not as big because in that weaning to grass turnout time frame, they can be very susceptible to, to sickness, and it requires a bigger level of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll go to grass. They come off grass sometimes. They don't always all go to grass. Some mm-hmm. cattle, for instance, if you 
uh, if your calves are born in January, they're probably going to be too too big by the time grass turnout happens the following April. Yeah. So they're going to go in as calf feds to a feed yard, and they're going to be finished. They'll they might not go to pasture after they're weaned. Mm-hmm. It just depends on where you're at in the world, the weather, the feed in the in the region. Um, so like where we live, we live in the sand hills. Great grass in the summer, but you've been on the beach. When that right. grass is dormant, if you walk on it, the whole root zone just explodes. Yeah. So we pull cattle off in like August or September. Right. Um, so it just depends. And and we've we've got people that are like, hey, you you don't have to pull cattle off grass. I'm like, dude, come look at the dirt. Right. My wife's family's been here 110 years. Well, so-and-so, an hour from you, I'm like, do you yeah. have any idea what the soil difference is an well, hour soil, away? Well, soil can change in, in two miles. I mean, yeah. And know, around here we have some clay hills and you go right down in the valley and it's topsoil and those two ranchers have to run things completely different. A hundred percent. And there's a lot of people that don't catch that. Like, I mean, as a lineman, when you guys were setting posts, right. setting new poles. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could be so three some, poles down some holes just, you just dig straight down. It's just a straight up and down post hole and, and some holes the excavator's literally falling in it and you're trying to reach for out far enough to you know, mm-hmm. to get a hole deep enough because it's caving off like it, it's, yeah. And it's amazing the difference in just a mile. Yeah. It's crazy. So if we apply all that to, you know, the end product of beef, you know, we're, we're talking live cattle and we're talking steak in a box. Um, grass finish is going to have more of that gamey antelope type flavor. Right. Um, and the reason for that is uh, in the fat, if you've had true grass finished beef, it's got that yellow fat similar yep. to what you find in like an elk or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beta carotene in the fat. That comes from just grass. Mm-hmm. When cattle go in a feed yard and we feed them a concentrate ration, it flushes the beta carotene out of the fat. And that's where you get that bright white fat that we are used to seeing on grain finished animals. That's where that buttery flavor comes from. Yeah. And then you have the aging conversation. Like all of our beef is aged for 21 days as a whole carcass before we cut it up. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get that nutty uh, aged flavor. Mm-hmm. From a quality standpoint, uh, there, there's an argument in the health community that says grass finished is better for you than grain finished. And mm-hmm. they say that it's omega threes. I believe it is. There's three times more omega threes in grass finished beef. Well, cool. But it's both of those numbers are still almost zero. If you want omega threes, eat salmon. Right. Right. Um, so it's, it's a lot of that. I don't want to call it games, but it's, it's a lot of salesmanship, if yeah. you will. Oh, for sure. Marketing. Um, yeah. Well, a great example on the label side. Like if you and I are talking about natural beef, Mm -hmm. the definition for natural is different between cattle and steak. Oh, really? Yeah. If we have natural cattle, they've never been given antibiotics, never been given additional hormones. Right, right. right. The definition for natural beef is no artificial preservatives, or excuse me, no uh, naturally processed, or I forgot exactly what it is. Sorry. Drawing a blank. Uh. No artificial ingredients, naturally processed, or something like that. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the definition of the cattle. Yeah. That's a food industry thing. Right. You know, if you're 85% of the natural or of the market, because the, the big four in the cattle industry mm-hmm. own 85% of the value chain. Right. They want to be able to put natural on it. Mm-hmm. So the labeling requirements for actual beef are different than the same word we use on the live cattle side. Sure. Um. So what we try to talk to people about is vote with your dollar. Yeah. If if you want to support a grass-finished operation, go nuts. We have no problem with that. Right. We can't feed everybody. 
Right. I mean, we harvest 600,000 <clears throat> cows a week in this country. Mm-hmm. We're never going to get to even a percentage of that. And that's what I told, you know, that's what Greg and I talked about. You know, you've, you've talked about Greg with Little Belt, and I've talked about Two Crick, and, you know, my, this is my uncle. And uh, what we need is more people just copying you and doing exactly what you're doing or copying Two Creek or copying Greg in, in, and making their models work for the areas that they're in and the mm-hmm. business model, right? And, and Well, and I'm going to add to that. The one thing a lot of these producers don't do is they don't ask their customers what they want. Right. They say, <laughs> this is how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you guys get customer feedback. That's probably pretty good intel. Yeah. And a lot of my my brothers and sisters in agriculture are like, this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. If they don't like it, that's their problem. I'm like, well, if they're not buying it, man, that's a problem for you. Yeah, ultimately, it's a business, right? And it's, you know, how do you drive more revenue? How do you be more efficient? And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, how do you how do you stay in the game that you're in, which is ranching, you know, or a form of agriculture? Because it's a very difficult thing. Like, if you're a 19-year-old kid, you've just graduated high school, and your parents were, you know, live, you live in an apartment and your parents were in New York City, and you say you want to, you know, be in agriculture or be a rancher someday, you got to be pretty creative and figure out how to get there. But there's definitely paths and there's definitely ways to be involved in it. And it might not be, you may not own an 80,000 acre ranch anytime soon, uh, but there's definitely ways to be in agriculture and build your way up to it. I mean, just like with what you and your wife have done, you guys took, you know, different career paths to finally get to this place that you're at now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, well, and the cool part is my father-in-law has been watching all of this. And and originally we told him we were starting the beef company. He's like, I think that's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. Eh, I think we got it, Dave. We'll be good. Like yeah. this is, we know sales. Mm-hmm. I think we can provide value. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, you kids did a good job. Yeah. It took six years. Right. And he's and he's always supported us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not right. saying he was negative. He just he was a little worried. He's like, "You guys are doing really good in corporate America. Why would you make this switch?" Right. Because he's ran the family ranch since the 70s, and in that 40 year time frame, 50 year time frame, he's watched the profitability of agriculture in general fall from 35 percent to 14. Right. He's watched right. this steady erosion of profit, and he's like, "You guys." don't want to make that gamble. Yeah. And I, I have, you know, a lot of people tell me like they want to quit their job and chase their dream. And a lot of what we've done is motivating for them. But I, I I tell people too, like young guys, like go, go, go work in, you know, corporate America or go work for companies doing whatever and, and build some experience, build Mm -hmm. some business sense, get a marketing degree, get a business degree, go work for a company and, and, learn learn all the different business aspects because when you start this you know your quote-unquote you chase your passion in life like it's you still have to pay your house payment and feed Mm -hmm. your kids you know and so it it, you know what you guys did for a long time getting the experience that you got and then turning around and parlaying all that experience into what you're doing now you know it's that's why I waited so long to start MKC is I knew when I was 22 and 23 years old I did not have the business sense or you know uh you or know. the war chest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To to do this, you yeah. know, and even with the money that I had saved when I quit being a lineman, it was enough to take us about six months. You know, it's not that like... That is not a long runway with, with kids. No. Yeah. No. So, you know, it, it, some of this is definitely a gamble, but a lot of it was calculated and a lot of it was like, okay, I think I'm ready. 
not just financially, but, you know, business sense wise, connections, maturity, Yeah, you know, well, I'm pretty immature, but right here, man, me too. <laughs> so, well, uh, how, how do people, how do people find you? What, what's your, what's your website? Uh, Colorado craft beef on basically everything. Uh, the, I think the only one that's not Colorado craft beef is on Twitter or X, whatever they're calling it now. Yeah. And it's Colo craft beef. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're pretty visible. We're out there. We're advertising. We're doing all the things. Uh, we're doing a ton of holiday push right now. The amount of gift giving that happens with steak is pretty incredible. Well, it's a phenomenal gift. I mean, you know, uh, we actually ordered a bunch of uh, uh, boxes of, of beef from Greg as well to sure. send to our suppliers. Good. Um, just to thank them for, we, we talked about this, right? Like if one of your supply chain pieces fails, like mm-hmm. the company doesn't operate, right? So I think a lot of times businesses forget to also thank those people. Like we tend to call them throughout the year and be like, what the hell, man? <laughs> like, where's my shit? Right. You know? And so and you don't call them when it's on time to say thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, like, you know, I don't congratulate them for doing what they said they were going to do. Yeah. Like, but I definitely am not happy when they don't do what they said they're going to do. So I do encourage people like, you know, using, using, you know, boxes of meat and stuff like this, as a way to thank your suppliers, thank your, thank your boss at work or thank your, the people that work for you. If you're the boss, um, it, it's such a cool, it's such a cool gift. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that then people will enjoy with their families. Um, and you're also helping a small business in in your business that hopefully those people will like those. I mean, dude, my wife and I had, uh, your guys' steaks the other, what was it? Probably a week ago. Holy shit. It's good. Thank like, you. And I'm all about grain feed that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the, I'm not, I mean, the, the grass feds fine, whatnot, but like I'll figure out how to be, you know, I, I still really question the motives behind a lot of like the quote unquote health nuts and the grass fed and the not. And like, if you're a rancher and you're doing grass fed and, and doing that, that's great. Or if you're an organic farmer or you're doing, you know, I think there's definitely, uh, there's definitely some things to be said for that, right? With mm-hmm. you can go overboard with chemicals and a bunch of that stuff. But um, well, look at what Will Harris has done with White Oak Pastures. Um, you know, he's been on Rogan a couple of times. He's he's yep. turned that ranch around. His story is outstanding. Yep. And we've had some people. Well, do you do what Will does? I'm like, nah, man. He's in South Georgia. Yeah. He gets 44 inches of rain a year. I get 11. Right. By sheer math, I'm not going to be able to do what Will does. Well, and ranchers are so, um, God, they're such good stewards, you know, like, you know, people, there's this people that shit on cattle operations and they think, you know, giant, you know, factory farming or whatever. I don't even know how you define that exactly. But like mm-hmm. my uncle runs the cattle operation on a giant ranch in Eastern Montana. And that guy is a freaking scientist mm-hmm. when it comes to his, uh, intensive crop grazing stuff that he does. And the amount of times he moves those cattle around my buddy up in Lincoln that owns a ranch as well. Um, you know, constant movement of those cattle, intensive grazing in small areas. Uh, there's so much science behind how do they get the most off out of that ground, but how do they make that sure that ground is healthy as possible for next year when they do graze it. And that's what people need to understand is like, if, if you see a rancher out there just overgrazing his place and tearing it up, He's not going to be a rancher for very long. No. These guys, it is in their best uh, interest to do everything that they can to take care of the ground and the animals mm-hmm. on that ground. So I'm going to I'm going to give you one one uh, little pushback here on the feed yard thing. Yeah. So in a commercial feed yard, 
uh, yes, they are trying to push those cattle, and it's all economics, mm-hmm. especially some of the big, big, big yards. In a lot of the yards, though, especially like ours or some of our neighbor yards around us, and, and all the yards, actually, we all have licensed nutritionists. Yeah. I mean, the amount of oversight and the amount, I mean, we have a mineral pack we put in. Like, these cattle are, are like, dialed in. I get daily reports on all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the good news is the push, push, push model of the feed yard that used to be the case mm-hmm. is actually slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, our yard, other yards around us, we're all kind of moving in that same direction because – to some degree, you want you want gain. You know, that's the metric is average daily right. gain, right? Yep. You're familiar with that? Yep. But at the same time, you want a natural maturity of that animal. You want to hit a natural endpoint at the right time. Right. And one of the things we're actually implementing and other people in the industry are starting to implement is we're doing genomic testing. We're taking ear punches and getting genomic data that says this is how these cattle need to finish. And then we're applying what that calf needs. We're then taking, you know, two or 300 animals, separating them by how they need to be fed, yep. putting them in different feed pens to then moderate how they need to work based on their genetic breakdown. Yeah. And that level of science is super cool. Yeah. And, and for the record, I, you know, when people shit on, you know, when I said, I don't I still don't understand really what they call factory farming because when it comes to like a feedlot, like my uncle runs a feedlot down in Hamilton. Um, when, they, they are a necessity. When you when you need to feed 6,000, when you have to pump 6,000 cattle into one city in America, um, you know, you you can't just do it all in these big open ranges and let them eat grass and let them all be free and wild and, and then somehow think that you're going to feed America at the rate we need to feed it. We, we yeah. actually have every day there's uh, soil being tilled or, uh, you know, broke up and put into subdivisions. So we actually are, and, but we, every day we're making more humans. So like the, and I'm not real good at math, but the math is going in the wrong direction. So those, the science that's involved in those feedlots. And when I say that they have to feed them out as fast as possible, I mean, within, within reason and, 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 and within some standards. Right. But, but they have to do that in order for them to keep, the meat coming into Walmart at the rate that it needs to come into Walmart or well, Costco or because if we else. think about average daily gain, cattle on grass, if you do grass finished, right, those cattle are going to be between twenty four and thirty six months when they are finished if they only ever eat grass, right. We're harvesting grain finished cattle at twenty or twenty four months, yeah. So you're six or eight months shorter, right. And also when those cattle are on grass, it, it, good grass. Mm-hmm. Like if they're on grass at our place right now, they're getting no nutritional value. It's right. all dormant. Yeah, everything in my pasture. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, if they're if they're there, it's not doing anything. But in right. the summer, we're hoping for one point five to two pounds a day. Yep. In a feed yard, in some commercial settings, you get as much as four pounds a day. Right. We're at three to three five because mm-hmm. we're a little more moderate. But you're talking that that calf is growing, you know, forty to fifty percent more per day. Yep. You're getting that natural endpoint sooner. So the one thing that a lot of the uh, more environmentally conscious people, I'm a rancher, I have to be environmentally conscious every day. Right. But the people that really want to hammer on grass finished being better for the environment, you have a 67% lower carbon footprint eating grain finished beef than you do eating grass. Oh, really? Because the cattle are alive shorter, a shorter amount of time. Yep. And the amount of methane that cattle emit is highest when they're on a roughage diet. 
Mm. When they're on a concentrate diet, they are not burping as much. They're not generating the methane that comes from breaking down grass in their room. Which that whole methane thing drives me crazy. Yeah. Actually, I saw an interesting study the other day, and I'll have to find it, email it to you for some light reading when you're up in the middle of the night like I am. It said that the actual methane from cows is less than 10% different than the methane that would be released if that grass went dormant and rotted on the ground. Oh, really? I was like... I had never thought of that. They said yeah. the methane that is released when that grass lays down under the snow and goes dormant and then rots to, you know, create, recreate topsoil. Yeah. Is only 10% less. Uh, cattle are only 10% more by actually using it. Yeah. And Interesting. I would rather we concentrate on how we uh, solve the meth problem. I, I've then never. Yeah. Once we solve the <laughs> meth problem, let's talk about methane from cattle. Right. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, it's now, crazy. It's been it's been a wild ride, man. I really appreciate you having me up. Yeah, man. Uh, I think it's really cool what you're doing. I I I told Greg we need more people doing stuff like this because um, it's it's not easy. There's a barrier to entry for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's not the full on model that you've got, if it's if it's even just supplying steaks to people at at, at a farmer's market mm-hmm. out of a refrigerated food truck or. And we support everybody. Like, yeah. that's our model. It's, mm-hmm. You'll never find us bashing anybody in the ag space. Right. I cannot place judgment on somebody else in ag with how they're doing stuff for the most part. Yeah. Because I don't know their story. Yeah. And frankly, I'm running my race. Right. I'm, well, and by doing what you're doing, you're supporting the ranchers around you when you're, when you're pulling in cattle from those different places. Because you just can't you know, raising all of your own cattle to try to do this on your own ranch at all the different age classes that you need to provide beef 365 days a year. Um, you know, what you guys are doing, it, it actually creates, you know, demand that, that you need to lean on the people around you to support your business, which helps the entire community, you know, and, and quite honestly, kind of like with, uh, with our company, um, by shipping across state lines and doing stuff around the country, you're actually bringing revenue dollars into your community. So you're not just leaning on your community to make your living. Mm-hmm. Um, you're actually bringing revenue dollars in from that that guy in New York City and then spending those dollars on the neighboring rancher. Yeah, you know, or paying and your paying employees. What, yeah, yeah, your wages with your employees, your taxes, everything. So, mm-hmm. no, I think it's really cool what you're doing. I think it's cool you're involving Pete and Jocko and those guys, so. Um, yeah, so your Instagram and your website again? Yeah, it's all coloradocraftbeef.com. So it's all out there. Uh, keep an eye out, you know, support us. And if you don't want to support us, support other ranchers. Um, there's nothing wrong with beef in the grocery store. Yeah. It's inspected. It's safe. It's nutritious. And that's the other thing you'll never find us doing is food shaming anybody. Right. I mean, do, right. do what you got to do for your family. We respect that. Yeah. Um, and we'll not demonize the commercial chain either because we got to feed people. Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather a family somewhere that's struggling a little bit, you know, feed their family, uh, you know, the cheapest, you know, and maybe least nutritious possible steak that they can buy versus, you know, processed food. Oh man, you know, like I got please, a funny one for you. Yeah, do you know uh, Travis Mannion Foundation? No, um, Marine Corps officer uh, killed overseas. His sister Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, has a foundation for him and we're doing some work with them. My wife just went on her podcast and she was talking about, I fell into the label trap. Ryan's like, I fell into the label trap. I was buying my kids organic Mac and cheese. And my husband looked at me and was like, do you really think organic Mac and cheese is <laughs> yeah. better than just burger? Like, yeah. And she was like, shit. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, you know, uh, I, I really think that with, with all of the chemicals and all the processed food, I think it's a, a lot of the problems with our nation. Like, like I say, like, you know, you don't have to buy the thickest ribeye at the store or something like just buy your kids chicken, buy your kids pork, buy your kids beef. Even if it's not the most premium, it's a start. Yep. It's way better than a bunch of the shit that comes in a box. Shop the outside of the grocery stores that my health coach sells me. Yeah. And for anybody wanting to lose weight, the carnivore diet is a game changer. Yeah. I'm down 80 pounds. No shit. Between, yeah, between jujitsu and working with Dr. Baker. And I mean, it's, it's been a ride. That's but, awesome. And, and a lot of people are like, man, carnivore is expensive. I was like, but is it? Like I was eating one meal a day and I was good. Yeah. Um, so if anybody is struggling on that journey, reach out to me. I will help you awesome. because it helped me a ton. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. Appreciate, Appreciate it, it. Thank you. All right.